John MacArthur said this with regards to preaching. You, you as a congregation, cannot honor God more than by listening reverently to his word with an obedient heart. That's the supreme act of worship. I'm not here to interrupt your worship. I'm here to focus your worship on the God who is being revealed in his word, end quote. And that's my heart this morning is that I would not be a distraction, but that I would allow the word of God to speak through me to you as we worship him together. So this morning I want to take us through a portion of scripture that I hope will not only inform, but will also equip us for effective service and ministry unto the Lord and his people. So turn with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 12 here in chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Bow with me in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that our gathering this morning with the reading of your word, the singing of songs that praise and glorify you and proclaim the truths of the gospel, and our prayers of praise and confession and intercession have been pleasing in your sight. And now as we turn to the preaching of your word, I pray that you would enable me to speak with clarity standing on the power and authority of your word, relying on your spirit to use it to bring conviction and edification to your people this morning. And I pray for this church that your people will worship you during this time by listening 
attentively and responding in obedience to your instructions. May you be glorified and exalted, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a college student over 20 years ago, Adam Litwin aspired to be a surgeon. He was part of a pre-med physician shadowing program, but unfortunately he became depressed and he dropped out of school and moved to L.A. to be with family and to receive mental health treatment. And while he was there, he started going to UCLA's medical library and spent time reading medical journals and continuing to dream about becoming a surgeon. In an article found on MedPage Today, um, we see what happened next. It says, quote, After spending a couple of months at UCLA's medical library, Litwin became a familiar face. Someone mistook Litwin for a resident physician and Litwin didn't correct them. Eventually, he put on a white coat and entered the hospital. Litwin chatted with other residents and attending physicians. He had lunch with providers in the cafeteria. He entered the residence lounge with a key that he had stolen. He wrote prescriptions under the name of of a physician with the same last name. Litwin observed medical procedures and answered the questions that attending physicians often quiz their residents on. He kept up the charade for about six months. Six months. He was eventually arrested and jailed for impersonating a doctor. Now at age 48, he's graduated from a medical school and he's hoping to match in a residency program, though none have offered him a spot. I wonder why. I think we would all agree that Irreparable and far-reaching damage has been done as a result of such dishonesty and deceptiveness to have a fake doctor taking care of you in a state of vulnerability and need or training alongside a fake doctor who you assume to be a qualified part of your team is extremely disconcerting. It breeds distrust and skepticism, integrity and credibility, of all those around you are questioned. And even honest physicians are impacted with increasing and unnecessary scrutiny and even falsely accused of being dishonest or deceptive themselves simply because of the distrusting climate that has been bred. It's equally, if not more, disheartening to hear that this happens in the church too. Last month, some of you may have heard the news that came forth of Ed Litton, the then newly elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention, how he plagiarized a series of sermons that J.D. Greer preached on Romans. And in an interview with the SBC This Week podcast, Litton tried to justify his plagiarism. He said that he had actually had Greer's permission to use Greer's material He tried to suggest that J.D.'s sermon notes were a type of commentary for his own personal study as he was preparing his own sermons, and yet basic comparison revealed identical sermon outlines and identical personal illustrations between both of their sermons. One article stated it this way, in all of these illustrations, the illustrations used in the sermons, Lytton not only copied the words, but attempted to copy the mannerisms 
as well. Linton further tried to justify plagiarizing sermons by saying that his preaching professor apparently told the class that they shouldn't cite other people when they preach their sermons, saying, quote, when a diamond miner goes looking for diamonds, he doesn't hold up the pick and the shovel, he holds up the diamond, end quote. Now, if a pastor and a teacher is willing to plagiarize in this principal area of his ministry, you have to think what else and where else is he willing to lie and how far-reaching is his dishonesty. Sadly, religious charlatans and false teachers are becoming all too common in the church today. Many church leaders also fall into disqualifying sins themselves, thereby undermining their ministry and discouraging the flock. And on the flip side, it is also becoming increasingly common for those involved in genuine faithful ministry and service to be slandered, maligned, or targeted, and discredited, and many become discouraged from continuing on in ministry as a result. How then do we guard ourselves from either of these two sides, becoming among the religious charlatans or becoming discouraged um, in ministry? In other words, how do we pursue and maintain genuine gospel-driven ministry? And that's what I hope to get us through both today and next week. The Apostle Paul was familiar with addressing opposition from people desiring to discredit his character and his ministry. And he was also well aware of false teachers who would infiltrate the church and teach heresy. He wrote his letter to the Galatians not only to defend his own apostolic calling, but also to counter the false teaching of the so-called Judaizers who were reinstating Jewish ceremonial practices in the church. And he wrote of similar false teachers and false teaching to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul addressed the elders at the church at Ephesus before he would go to Jerusalem. And he said in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, you can turn there if you want, Paul speaks to Timothy of a man named Demas. And we can see from Colossians 4 and from Philemon 1, Demas Demas is mentioned together with men like Luke, Epaphras, and Mark, who were fellow believers and ministry partners with Paul. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, Demas, having loved his present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, having been in the company of men like Paul and Luke, one can assume Demas was likely well regarded in the ministry until he deserted it. And it's unclear if Demas disqualified himself or if he was disingenuous from the beginning 
so as to be considered never truly being among us. In 1 John 2, verse 19. And we can only imagine the negative impact and discouragement it was to believers to witness and endure that, not to mention Paul's own discouragement. John MacArthur says, quote, Nobody wants to be led off a cliff, but that's a very real possibility for anyone who follows the wrong leaders. Nowhere is that more apparent than in the church. So again, on the one hand, we see the damage and the hurt from religious charlatans. And on the other hand, we see those who are involved in genuine ministry who are discouraged and impeded due to slander and false accusations or even persecution. And Paul was well aware of both of these in his day. And this is the context in which he writes to the Thessalonians. And before we get into our text this morning, I'm going to provide a little bit of additional background and context for our study here in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, as you guys know, is the first of two letters that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. He wrote it from Corinth around 51 or 52 AD. Paul is the self-stated author of this letter. And as we know from this writing here and in Acts 17 as well, Paul founded and planted the church in Thessalonica during his second missionary journey with Timothy and Silas. And we will review that briefly in Acts 17 shortly. A little bit of background about Thessalonica. It was the capital of Macedonia, and it was a very large city, about 200,000 people in Paul's day. And it was a hub of social, political, and commercial activities. And the city was originally named Therma because of the many adjoining adjacent hot springs. And then it was renamed Thessalonica when Rome conquered Macedonia in 168 B.C. And today, interestingly, it is one of the few cities remaining from the New Testament or apostolic era. And Thessalonica was a strategic place of ministry for Paul as it resulted in wide spreading of the gospel following his missionary work there. And after ministering and planting the church in Thessalonica, Paul was then sent away due to the hostility that he encountered from Jews. And he went to Athens, and Timothy and Silas were left in Berea. Timothy and Silas then rejoined Paul in Athens, and then Timothy then would return to Thessalonica to continue to minister to the church there, while Silas went off to Philippi and Paul went to Corinth. And then Timothy and Silas met back up with Paul in Corinth, and Timothy gave a good report to Paul concerning the church in Thessalonica. And this is the basis then for Paul's writing this first letter to them. Now, Paul clearly cared deeply for the church in Thessalonica, he commended them for following his example. You can see this in verse 6 of chapter 1. He commends them for following his example in their service and ministry, which resulted in the gospel spread throughout Macedonia and Achaia. He encouraged them as they endured suffering and persecution. We see this in chapter 2, verse 14. And he was thankful for and deeply encouraged by them. And, and this is reflected in how he refers to them in verse 20 of chapter 2. For you are our glory and joy. 
And Paul was truly thankful for this church in Thessalonica. And he further demonstrated this thankfulness and appreciation for them through his constant prayer for them. And we see this in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1 where he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making constant mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. It's worth noting that prayer was a constant thing for Paul, was it not? This was a regular habit for him, a pattern in his ministry. We see how he loved the church and he prayed constantly for the church. In Colossians 1 verse 3, he says that he's praying always for you. And again, in verse 9 of Colossians 1, we have not ceased to pray. And he says to Philemon, in Philemon 1.4, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. What a wonderful example, as well as an important standard for us. Your love for the church is demonstrated in your prayer for the church. Some interpretations suggest that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians at a time when opposers were infiltrating the Thessalonian church and trying to discredit him. And as such, he wrote to address these false accusations and to set things straight. And he also realized that the Thessalonian church was enduring persecution and opposition. And we see this again in chapter 2, verse 14, as well as in his second letter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we see that the Thessalonian church was enduring significant persecution and opposition. And so Paul wanted to write to encourage the Thessalonians. We know that persecution and opposition can make one susceptible to false teaching and temptations to forsake the truth. I think of the church in Afghanistan right now, how applicable and encouraging Paul's words would be to them and how Paul's model and encouragement can help us to pray for the Afghan Christians who are enduring tremendous persecution right now. And before we get into chapter 2 here, I've titled this message, Marks of Genuine Gospel-Driven Ministry, and it's worth taking a moment to define the word ministry. And the Greek word for ministry, diakonia, occurs 36 times in the New Testament, and it carries the meaning of attendance and service. We see it used in Luke 10, verse 40, describing Martha's service while Mary was with Jesus. In Acts 1, verse 17, the word is used in reference to the work that the apostles would carry forward. In Acts 6, it's used to reference to the daily service intending to the needs among those in the church. And as you guys know, in Acts 6, we see the first reference of the appointing of deacons in the church. In Acts 11, it's used to speak of the financial relief that was provided by believers in the church at Antioch for the brethren in Judea. In Acts 21, verse 19, it's used to refer to Paul's work and service to the Gentiles. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul uses this term again in reference to his work and service that God called him to. 
And then in finally, Revelation chapter 2, verse 19, the same term is used in the letter to the church in Thyatira, speaking of their service. And so taken all together, ministry then is work and service, commissioned by God, done unto the Lord and for the church, his people. Ephesians 2.10 speaks of the good works that we have been called to, that God has prepared and ordained beforehand, and as such, for us individually in a general sense, then ministry consists of these good works God has prepared and called all believers to in the church. And this brings us then to our text this morning. It's worth noting here that Paul, when he speaks of ministry, uh, speaks from a context of a variety of ministries that he was involved in with the Thessalonians. He was a missionary and an evangelist, and then he was also the first pastor of the church there in Thessalonica. And it's from this context then that he conveys to them and teaches them and shows them these three marks or categories of genuine gospel-driven ministry. We're going to see the first mark, the principles of genuine gospel-driven ministry in verses 1 through 4. Next week, we're going to go on to the second and third marks, uh, the second mark being the practice of genuine gospel-driven ministry, and this is in verses 5 through 10. And then finally, the products of genuine gospel-driven ministry, and this is found in verses 11 and 12. We're going to go through first the principles or the basis of genuine gospel-driven ministry found in verses 1 through 4. And we're going to go through specifically five principles that Paul lays out for us here in the text. The first principle of genuine gospel-driven ministry is that ministry is not in vain. Ministry is not in vain. Paul writes in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. That word vain literally means empty, useless, purposeless. I like the New Living Translation of that word where it says, Our visit to you was not a failure. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, where he says that preaching and faith are vain without Christ and his resurrection. So Paul was saying that ministry is not useless. Ministry is not purposeless. It's not empty. It's not a failure. But on the contrary, Paul's ministry had divine purpose. It had divine purpose, God's purposes. And we see this in verse 2 as Paul goes on. He says, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Paul says that after they had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, and here he's referencing the events in Philippi as stated in Acts 16. And you can turn to Acts 16 if you would like. Acts 16, this is a familiar passage to us. We see Paul and Silas are in Philippi. And they cast out a demon from a young slave girl who had been making money for her masters as a fortune teller. 
And the masters were very angry at this, and they dragged Paul and Silas through the town, and they were beaten by the magistrates and townspeople, and then they were put in prison in stocks. And we uh, recall the familiar verses there where Paul and Silas were singing hymns in the middle of the night, and the Lord sent an earthquake which freed them, and the jailer thought that all of the prisoners were going to escape and he was going to commit suicide, but Paul and Silas preached the gospel to him and he and his family became believers and were baptized. And the following day, they were going to be released privately, but Paul demanded that they be freed publicly as they were Roman citizens. And so this account here in Acts 16 is what Paul is referring to here in verse 2, that they had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. They were physically and emotionally mistreated, and they were publicly humiliated, and yet they still pressed on saying that ministry was not in vain. Why? It's because they pursued it by God's purposes. And what was God's purpose? God's purpose was the preaching of the gospel and the winning of souls for Christ. We see this in the account of the Philippian jailer who was saved, him and his family. And then we see here after their mistreatment in Philippi, their witness to the Thessalonians in Acts 17 and their conversion and the planting of the church there. So the first principle is ministry is not in vain. The second principle that we see here is that ministry is boldly pursued. Ministry is boldly pursued. Paul, because he was pursuing ministry because of God's purposes, could pursue ministry with boldness. He knew that God's plans and purposes could not be thwarted and that they would be accomplished even if Paul were removed. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes to Timothy, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see, Paul knew God didn't need him to spread the gospel. God could have employed any number of other means to do that, and yet it was God's choice to use Paul for this purpose. Now, we know that man's purposes are fallible and inconsistent, and it would be very hard to place your confidence in the purposes that could change but because God's perfect, eternal, unchanging purposes are at play here, we know that we can boldly and confidently press forward in the work of ministry. Continuing on, the third principle that we see here is that ministry is gospel-centered. Ministry is gospel-centered. Looking again here in verse 2, Paul says, After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. 
Paul's ministry was centered on declaring the gospel of God. And he declared it amid much opposition. And what opposition is Paul referring to here? We can turn back to Acts, this time to Acts 17. Acts 17, looking at verses 1 through 9, actually looking at 1 through 15. We'll just briefly look here at Acts 17. We see here that Paul and Silas and Timothy were initially witnessing in Thessalonica. In verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Verse 5, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And this here is the opposition that Paul speaks of. They were chased out of Thessalonica and then they went on to Berea. And they did the same thing in Berea. And we can see in verse 13... Same thing, after they had preached the gospel, verse 13, when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And it's for this reason that Paul had to leave. This is just some of the opposition that we can see that Paul encountered as he preached the gospel. This this phrase... Amid much opposition, it can also be translated with much contention. And that's an athletic term that means a contest or struggle. Paul's preaching was always amid much struggle. You see, Paul and his ministry was not, uh, sorry, ministry for Paul was not easy. You guys can see how Paul describes the opposition and the struggles that he endured, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says he's endured affliction in Asia. He was utterly burdened beyond strength. He felt that he had received the sentence of death. He faced deadly peril. In chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, he says that we who live are always being given over to death for Christ, for Jesus' sake. In chapter 6, he says that he's endured afflictions and hardships and calamities and beatings and imprisonments and riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. 2 Corinthians 11, he says that he's endured beatings often nearing death, lashes and beating with rods, stoning, shipwreck, danger from robbers, hunger and thirst, cold and exposure. And all of this on top of his daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches, as he says there in 2 Corinthians 11. Consider all of the opposition that Paul faced in his ministry of preaching the gospel. And why? Why did he face such opposition? This opposition was to the gospel itself. You see, gospel truth is divisive. And Satan himself will vehemently oppose it. 
Turn with me to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 24, starting in verse 24. 24 through 30, and then also in verses 36 through 43, we see here Jesus teaching the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he says, while his men were sleeping, this is the landowner, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the landowner said, an enemy has done this. In verse 27, the slaves of the landowner said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And the slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? Verse 29, but he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Later on in the chapter, in verses 36 through 43, the Lord explains what the tares are. He says that they are all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. This is the opposition to the gospel. This is Satan's attempts to oppose the gospel. And we see here then that as long as the people of God are here, those who oppose the gospel are going to be here as well until those last days when Jesus will have the tares gathered and thrown into the furnace. But until that time, there will be opposition to the gospel. Consider this. Is your ministry embraced wholeheartedly among the world? Is it without opposition? One must ask themselves then, is their ministry gospel-centered? So we see here the basis for ministry is a bold commitment and endurance to proclaim the gospel for the purposes of God. This encompasses the motivation, the work, and the perseverance of ministry. Again, John MacArthur says, being an authentic Christian demands a willingness to pay the price. We can say it differently, being an authentic Christian involved in genuine gospel-driven ministry, must be willing to pay the price. Principle number four, let's go back to our text in 1 Thessalonians. Principle number four, ministry extends from purity and correctness. Ministry extends from purity and correctness. Look in verse three, for our Exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Paul preached the gospel with correctness and with clean motives and intentions. 
Paul preached the true gospel, not a false or misconstrued gospel like the false teachers did. He preached the gospel in its correct form and content without error. In addition, his preaching was also pure. He says it was free of impurity. And that that word impurity can also be translated uncleanness or acatharsis, which is the opposite of cleansing or catharsis. And this word impurity typically referred to sexual purity, sexual purity. And in fact, Paul uses this same word in other letters with this specific meaning and context. You can look in Romans 1, verse 24. He says, uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. In Galatians 5, verse 19, he says, the works of the flesh are adultery, fornication, and uncleanness. Colossians 3, verse 5, he says, mortify fornication and uncleanness. He refers to it again later on in his letter here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, where he says, abstain from sexual immorality, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So Paul here is speaking of the utmost and highest standard of purity. And when we consider the highest standard of one's purity, we inevitably are brought to their sexual purity, the standard of which was put forth in Genesis 2 with the first marriage between one man and one woman. And this standard, as we know, has been breached and marred ever since that time. Furthermore, Paul said his preaching was not done with any intention to deceive or trick. That word deceive or to, uh, not by way of deceit conveys this imagery of baiting with a hook to lure in and to catch. Paul was not preaching the gospel so that he could benefit from tricking people. Rather, his desire was for people to come to know Christ. If you notice here that he speaks of error, impurity, and deception, and these are all common marks of false teachers. Common marks of false teachers. If you look in 2 Peter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter describes false teachers in the exact same way. Look in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. There you go, error. Even denying the master who, brought, who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. Again, this idea of impurity. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you. There's that deception again. They will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. See, false teachers were trying to discredit Paul by saying that he was erroneous, that he was preaching with false motives, deceptive motives, impure motives, and Paul had to correct them and say, no, 
I have separated myself from all of these things. I did not preach from error or impurity or by way of deceit. So the fourth principle is ministry. Ministry extends from purity and correctness. I'm going to end with this last principle here. Our time is getting short here. Ministry, principle number five, ministry is approved by God. Ministry is approved by God. Let's look back in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. We see here Paul, first and foremost, says that he is approved by God to preach the gospel. And this was his primary motivation for preaching, is his approval, and not only that, his desire to please God in doing it. He says that he is examined by God, God who examines our hearts. In other words, in other words, God has tried Paul and deemed him fit to preach the gospel. We know that Paul was well aware of his personal unworthiness. He frequently speaks of it in his letters. In 1 Corinthians 15, for example, in verse 8, he says that he is one untimely born. I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Galatians 1, he says, If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul again says his approval, his placement as an apostle was because of God's calling, God's approval of him. Ephesians 3, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. To me, the very least of all saints. So Paul realized he was unworthy, and yet God, after examining him, considered him and deemed him fit and approved him for preaching the gospel. And secondly, Paul says that he has been entrusted with the gospel. He has been entrusted with the gospel. This word simply means to put in trust with. And the idea here is that Paul was expected to care for or to manage what was given to him properly. He was not free to do as he pleased. He was expected to obey God. And notice, notice that Paul's response to all of this, to what he had been entrusted with, was to serve willingly. He loved and obeyed God, having been redeemed by God's grace and mercy, and he desired to do what would please God. So to summarize, we see that the basis for ministry is a bold commitment and endurance to proclaim the gospel for the purposes of God 
with purity and correctness and in a manner that pleases God who chooses and places us in ministry. That's the first mark, the principles of gospel-driven ministry. I realize some here this morning or others who may be listening or watching for some, the, the principles we went over here this morning may not be relevant in your life and if you are not a follower of Christ. Paul committed his life to faithful ministry out of his love for and obedience to Christ. He had previously lived thinking he was secure, fulfilled, and even right before the Lord as he persecuted the church and even killed Christians. And in his sinfulness and his defiance before the Lord, God graciously saved him. He was convicted of his sin and he repented. He believed in the redeeming work of Christ for him at the cross. And he committed his life to following God. And God transformed Paul's life and used Paul in mighty ways to preach the gospel, to establish his church, and to write a substantial portion of the New Testament scriptures that teach and instruct the church today. If you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I, I implore you to turn to him today. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's an assurance. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Come to Christ, repent and turn, and you will be saved. I like what Pastor Don Green said. He said, the cross actually saves. It doesn't merely potentially save. A merely potential salvation limits the love that Christ has for his own. Christian friends, he didn't just love us enough to make our salvation possible. He loved us enough to save us so that there was no possibility of us ever being lost. If you, do know not, if you do not know Christ, come to him. Come to him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time to study even just a small portion of your word together this morning. How rich your word is how precious your thoughts are to us we thank you for the example you have set before us in the Thessalonian church men and women who turned from idolatry through Paul's preaching and the work of the spirit in their hearts the gift of salvation is what gives rise to believers being involved in gospel driven ministry as part of our transformed lives and for those who do not know you as lord and savior Gospel-driven ministry is meaningless. But I pray that for those who are not saved, that they would turn to you, repent, and trust in your work of redemption for them on the cross 
and through your resurrection. We thank you that ministry that is pursued according to your perfect purposes is never in vain, but will be effective because you provide the power. We ask that you would enable us to serve with boldness and confidence, that our work would be gospel-driven, gospel-centered, and that our conduct would be pure, correct, and pleasing to you. May we serve as those approved by you to serve in the capacities you have ordained, all for your glory and the fulfillment of your kingdom work and purposes. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Phil, for those reminders. I have always uh, really, truly loved the the um, passage of Scripture here, the especially the chapter 1. He um, says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And then in, as Phil preached in 2.1, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. That literally did not become vain. It, it had power. It had uh, effectiveness. Uh, it's interesting in verse 9 of chapter 1, it says that he says that they... For they in themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, that how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That is the mark of true gospel ministry, is people coming and turning to Christ and following Christ and persevering to the end. And so we pray here that our ministry would be just that. So in just a moment, uh, Phil's going to we're going to Phil's going to lead us in a song. Uh, just in a moment, though, we want to I wanted to tie this together with our right hand of fellowship because because I, I I think that I think this was a incredible sermon to to do or to have right before we welcome new members on board. If you think about if you think about gospel ministry, uh, faithful gospel ministry, uh, it, it really is the power of God through the gospel and how people will come together as the church and how and then even we see this that they had become a an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia well I pray that this church would have that type of ministry that this church as we welcome new members aboard as we see this church grow and be built that this this is the type of ministry that we would see here so I jumped a gun a little bit but I'm gonna let you sing and lead us in sing, singing, and then we're going to come back and do the right hand of fellowship.